Well, good morning, saints. What a joy it is to break the bread of life with you, be here and listen to what God is doing with the apples. That's a, a great work. I don't know if you uh, uh, feel the way I do today. I look at the news, both fake and real, and uh, wonder where in the world does the church fit into this picture? Where do I, as a believer, fit into it? And uh, I normally like to speak uh, expositorily through a text in the Scriptures, but I'm going to break with that this morning. I want to talk about what it means to be light in this dark world. I do not have to remind you that we are living in a very, very dark time. Unfortunately, many signs even point to a deepening of that darkness. Many believers are tempted to wring their hands, fold their selves into a bed somewhere and pull the covers over their head and hunker down, hope for the best. Others, often well-intentioned, are filled with anger and frustration to the point of paralysis. The news, whether it is true or false, seems to be focused continuously on the negative. Few stories ever hit the front pages about something positive and rewarding. This is not what Christ did. He lived in a time when there was great turmoil. But he asked, as he looked at Peter, he saw some good in him. And he said, follow me and I will make you what you have never become yourself. So where do Christians, where do we find footing in this environment? Where do we see hope, living hope, for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren? I want to point to some very positive and proven facts that we as believers can find comfort in remembering and being sobered by their implications. We're going to look quickly at several points. And I want you to take just a moment, if you have your Bibles, and I apologize, we didn't get coordinated here in time uh, to get the slides together. So I want you to look at verse 2 of Genesis 1. And this is what you will read there. And the earth was void and filled with darkness. That's a very, very foreboding statement. It suggests to us in the Hebrew 
that there was a very chaotic state. But notice what the Word says. Where do we find the Holy Spirit moving in that chaotic scene, hovering over the waters? My friends, the good news and the living hope this morning is that the Holy Spirit is hovering over us. He is hovering over our nation. He is hovering over our government. He is hovering over all the universe, the entire world, the Holy Spirit, whom I refer to many times as God's great enforcer. He is the one who is often charged by the Heavenly Father to bring to pass the Father's will. Who impregnated the Virgin Mary? It was the Holy Spirit. Who fills us and enables us to accomplish what Jesus said of us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, when he said these words, You are the light of the world. And then he said, A city set on a hill can never be hidden. What in the world is he talking about? He is saying that we are light and God's intention for us is not that we would be hidden, not that we would hunker down, not that we would uh, simply give up and say, well, my light is too small, my testimony is too feeble, my ability, my purse, everything about it, I can do nothing in this entire mess. That is not the truth. God chose a word to describe what we are, and he used that word light. Let me just take a moment and tell you something very, very interesting about light. It travels at 186,000 miles per second. At that speed, you can circle the earth seven and a half times in a second. What's fascinating is that unless there are some very unusual circumstances, light has never, ever been clocked at anything other than 186,000 miles per second. It is the only constant in the entire universe. It is the thing that physicists go to to measure everything else. God is a constant. Second, light travels in straight lines. It is predictable. We use lasers to cauterize a blood vessel in the back of an eye because we know when we aim it there, that's exactly where it's going to hit. There is a predictability to light. 
And God is looking for a predictability in his church and in us. But the third factor and characteristic of light is this. It overwhelms darkness. I don't care how dark you make this room. You can seal every crack in the windows, the doors, turn out all of the lights, and this place will be in absolute total darkness and light a candle. And there is not enough darkness to quench that candle. Light will always prevail over darkness. And if you go to Webster's Dictionary and look up the definition for darkness, this is what you will find, the absence of light. Because where light is, the darkness must go. Now, this brings to, fact, to, to, to place the tension. We are light, but we are living in the midst of a very, very dark world. This puts us into conflict with those who walk in darkness, those who love the darkness, their morals, their values, their sexual behavior, their pride, their dishonesty, and their violence is all antithetical to what we believe and stand for. But God, the creator of light, chose it to describe our role and our path as we walk in this world. There is nothing more powerful than light. And regardless of how evil, how dark, how foreboding, how hopeless the world seems to become, there is light. The story is told of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a concentration camp where a lot of persecution and suffering and torment and torture was going on. And a fellow prisoner was dying. And one of the men there that Dietrich Bonhoeffer had been witnessing to about God turned to Dietrich and said, pointing to this dying prisoner, he said, where's your God now? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he's right there. He's right there. If the Spirit of the Lord hovers over the darkness, my friend, the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over our world. He's hovering over this generation. He's hovering over your family. He's hovering over your lost loved ones. He is hovering over this community. All it will take is for the light of the gospel to just come and reflect the beauty, the radiance, the power of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get too harsh with those who are walking in darkness, let me remind you that we all once walked in darkness. Isaiah put it so poignantly when he said, the people who walked in darkness 
Chapter 9, Isaiah, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have what? Seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. We are all humbled by the fact that Christ saved us. There's no room in any of us for arrogance or pride. We are no better than those who walk in darkness. But we have been redeemed. We have seen the light. Without Christ, without the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would be in the same state as they are in because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then I want you to notice that those who walk in darkness are blinded. This is a very, very strategic point. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 these words. He says, if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. And then he makes this statement. In their case, speaking of those who are in darkness, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You wonder how in the world people can come to the conclusions they come to? You wonder how in the world they can embrace violence? How in the world can they take morality and twist it till it is such a horrendous perversion that even they themselves sometimes back off and wonder, what in the world have we done? They are blind. Blinded by the God of this world who is the enemy of the God we serve. This blindness causes them to hate us. Here's the reason. They are blinded by, as unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan has done everything he can to keep them from seeing the truth to keep them from observing the light. This darkness has caused the world to hate the church. Make no mistake about it. This darkness has caused the world to hate the church. We read these words in John chapter 3. This is the judgment Light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone, Jesus said, who does wicked things, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's why they hate the church. That's why they hate the truth. 
That's why they ridicule the church. That's why they want to take the Ten Commandments off the walls of our courts. That's why they want to stop people from praying. That's why they want to have no reference whatsoever to God in our Constitution, in our National Anthem, in our Pledge of Allegiance, because their eyes have been blinded, and that reference speaks to them of their own guilt and sin. So Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And you are the focus, you are the target, you are the bullseye of Satan. And you say, I thought you said you're going to be encouraging us this morning. That does not sound too encouraging. Well, let us notice that the world is living by an entirely different moral code than we are. It is a self-serving, self-centered moral code. And they view Christians as an obstacle. We are interfering with their rights. And the Holy Spirit nudges them, making their conscience be exposed. And the result is an increased hatred toward the church and toward the believer. And it is something that we have to deal with constantly. The Word of God and the Ten Commandments are an irritation to them, so their foolish heart is darkened, and they want all references to God and His Word abolished. As we follow Christ, our path is not going to be filled with an ever-increasing darkness, for Proverbs says, that the path of the wicked do not enter the path of the wicked, this is Proverbs 4, and do not walk in the way of evil, avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it, pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. And then he says this, But the path of the righteous is not like that. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. And that word full day is translated high noon. It is the one moment in the day when there are no shadows. We are walking in the path of light, and the Word says the light intensifies the further you go across that path until one day we will stand in His presence bathed in the light of God and all the shadows and all the darkness and all the questions and all the things that didn't make sense and add up will suddenly come into perspective and we will see it. I believe that like those in the Old Testament who in the heat of battle cried out to God 
because they felt they were about to be completely annihilated. And God, for a moment, opened their eyes and they saw the armies of God scattered across the landscape. I believe that the Holy Spirit that hovered over the face of the deep in Genesis is hovering over us, is hovering over our families, is hovering over our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, is hovering over our businesses, is hovering over our marriages. And if we will continue to walk in the light as Christ is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will continue to cleanse from sin. The distinction between those who live in sin and the children of God widens as both camps move forward. We move forward in increasing light. They move forward in increasing darkness. Listen to the words of Jesus to his followers on the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's right in the same passage that we started with, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine. I don't know if any of you grew up, there's very few of you grew up in my generation. But when I was a little kid in Sunday school, we used to have a little ditty we sang, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Well, what in the world does that mean? Let your light shine so that others may see your good works and glorify your Father. Let me give you a a more contemporary translation of that verse. Arrange your testimony and the shining of your light in such a way that people will see your good works but be conscious of your Father in heaven and glorify Him. In other words, make your testimony something that reflects the grace, the mercy, the love of God the Father. Jesus and his disciples arrived by boat into the countryside of the Gerasenes. And there they found a demonic, naked, wandering, living in the tombs in the cemetery. Often they had tried to corral him and restrain him, even with chains, and the demonic powers were so great that they broke the chains. And then he is confronted with the Savior, who cleanses him of his demons. And he is clothed and sitting in his right mind, peaceful. And then as the disciples and Jesus decide to leave that area, and they're boarding their little boat, he goes and he says, I want to go with you. What does Jesus say? No. You go tell your neighbors what the Lord has done for you. 
Let your light shine in such a way that they will see your calmness, your peace, your right mind, the clarity of what you're thinking now. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. I had, my wife and I had two children. Most of you know that I lost my first wife to cancer. And this wonderful lady that God brought into my life is my second Barbara. I don't make any mistakes. I kept the name the same. <laughs> but in my first marriage, we had two sons. I often told people we had one of each. They said, whatever does that mean? Well, we had one that was quite easy to manage. We had another one that was impossible to manage. He had to learn everything the hard way. He would be the kind of young man that if you told him, if you don't stop sawing that fourth leg of the chair, it won't be of any value anymore. Oh, he'd keep cutting it. And then he'd sit on it and fall over. Well, he had a tragic accident playing football and broke his neck, was paralyzed, both arms, both legs. Miraculously, as the swelling of that injury went down and the spine and cervix began to heal, he got the use of his arms and legs back. But the doctor said, don't you ever, ever play another game of football. If you do, you'll be a dead boy. So he said, what could I play? He said, well, you can play basketball. You could play anything's not a contact sport. What about baseball? Yeah, you can play baseball. So Steve began to play baseball in college. He was drafted by the Baltimore Orioles as a third baseman. He could hit the ball a country mile. And sliding into second base, head first, arms out, his arm caught the bag, which was immovable, jammed his shoulder, tore his rotator cuff, and his baseball career was over. In his brokenness, he's turned to drink. And for 35 years, he was a hopeless alcoholic. Four and a half years ago, he went to a Teen Challenge Center in Detroit, Michigan. Realizing that he's going to be there without any drink for a while, he tanks up on the way, gets into an airplane, goes up into the thin air, becomes absolutely hopeless. Can't get off the plane. They help him off and he can't get through the terminal. And when they finally realize what they're dealing with, he's taken to the emergency room, put in ICU, and the emergency doctor walked in and said, Steve, 
I want to tell you something. Every organ in your body has shut down. They are all poisoned. And you have less than 24 hours to live. I suggest you make peace with your maker. Steve kind of said to me afterwards, he said, well, Dad, nobody explained it to me that way before. And laying there in ICU, he surrendered his life back to God. That was four and a half years ago. He told me, Dad, I'm going to go back to the crowd that I ran with. And I'm even going to go to the bars. And when they're ordering their booze, I'll order a Coke. I said, son, I don't think that's a very good idea. Oh, Dad, he said, I want them to see what God has done for me. This is the best way, he said. I, I believe God has cured me, healed me. I know that I'm in recovering. I know that I've always got to keep my guard up. But this is what I'm going to do been doing it now for four and a half years. Almost every single one of his friends has come to him quietly, individually, on the side, and said, Steve, we knew you. You were the rowdiest. You were the worst of the bunch. How did you kick the habit? Then he says, I didn't. I couldn't. I tried for 35 years. But I gave the problem to God and I accepted Jesus as my Savior and He took it away. I have no desire for it. And they sit there and they say, that's, that's amazing. And He says, I know. I know. Now, I'm not standing here recommending that this is the path that a recovering alcoholic should take. But I am standing here to tell you that the light that God puts in us is greater than the deepest darkness in the world. And if we're going to let our light shine, where are we going to let it shine? Oh, it's easy to do it here Sunday morning with all the other lights. But what about when we get out there? A city that is set on a hill, Jesus said, cannot be hid. And if you let your light shine in such a way that people will see your good works, they'll glorify your Father in heaven. And what Jesus told this demonic out there in the countryside of the Gerasenes, he said, go tell your neighbors what the Lord has done for you. Now there's a huge difference between doing that and telling your neighbor what a jerk they are to be following whatever philosophy and moral code they're in. 
There's a huge difference between the two. Our anger must not overcome our compassion for the lost. Jesus saw the crowds. He knew their sin better than anybody else knew it. He knew that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the word says he was moved with compassion when they saw them. And he weeps over Jerusalem and says, How often would I have loved to have gathered you? But you would not. You pushed me aside. I believe God will do good things in your life. But it is something that you must let shine in such a way that it will give glory to your Father in heaven. Tell them what God has done for you. Don't keep telling them how wicked and how wrong and how ugly they are as a human being. Thirty times in the Gospel of John, John talks about light. You are the light of the world. I want to close with this. The Word says we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. We are wrestling against principalities and powers in heavenly places. This battle that we're in, friends, is not going to be won by physical strength. It's not going to be won by natural abilities. It's not going to be won by our protests. It's not going to be won by our opposition. It is a spiritual battle in heavenly places, and our victory is in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who is hovering over the darkness of the world. I would be very, very remiss if I did not tell you this morning that there is great hope for our generation. I believe that just as seeing the multitudes Jesus was moved with compassion. We too must become brokenhearted over the things that break the heart of the Lord. And I have felt smitten in my spirit because of the anger, because of the animosity and even hatred that I have felt toward those who are enemies of the church. And I believe the Lord would be much more pleased with Wayne Crace if he was moved with compassion, broken to the point of praying for them and letting my light shine in such a way that they would see God.